Amen. Well, gospel hope, let's go before our God and make our declaration of dependence, shall we? Amen. We need him. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come before you this morning and we declare that no amount of preparation, illustrations, clever anecdotes, jokes, or witty insights would ever replace Heavenly Father, your Holy Spirit. We need you. We declare our dependency, Heavenly Father, even as an audience, that no amount of memorization of a particular passage or church upbringing and familiarity with a particular passage, Heavenly Father, would replace, Heavenly Father, the work of regeneration and sanctification, O God, and conformity to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, that is only done by you, that's only done by your Holy Spirit, Heavenly Father. Nothing can replace that. Nothing can replace you. And we beg this morning that you would meet with us in this time, that we gather around your word in obedience as you told us to do, and that, Heavenly Father, that we would hear from you. Make yourself visible to us, Lord God, through the text, and make me completely invisible. This we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So, as you've already heard, we are wrapping up our series in Psalms, and particularly um, uh, our, our conversations around prayers. And um, just out of a, a show of hands, show of hands, we're, we're talking this morning from the title of The Ways of Repentance, The Ways of Repentance. Uh, just out of curiosity, how many of you use the app Ways, the Traffic Navigation app? Yeah, Ways, yeah, yeah? Just put your hands up high. Ways, Ways users? There we go. I thought we had more than that. Uh, I, too, I, too, am a huge fan of Ways. I started using Ways uh, about four years ago. And for those of you that have not been converted yet, I want to share with you kind of the virtue of Ways, and hopefully you'll come over. Um, but what differentiated Ways from all the other GPS softwares was this. Not only did Ways have, you know, the standard mapper grid that lets you know what your city looks like, not only did it have, um, obviously, global positioning, uh, you know, technology to show you where you are on that map, but there was this additional component. And that is they added in and integrated the, the driving community. They created a community amongst us drivers so that we not only know where each other are and how much traffic we're going through, but it gave us an opportunity to communicate potholes, raccoons, deer in the road, uh, unique backups, a fresh accident, real time where police are hiding and where we can't see them. And so it was just revolutionary to get all this information from our collective driving community as we went along. But one of the most important things is not just showing us where the deer and the cops are, but that all of that data comes together and it is translated into providing the individual user with the best and most efficient route possible. It gives us shortcuts. It shows us real time what routes we need to take to avoid certain backups to get through the city. I believe that Waze is a wonderful invention. I believe that the idea is incredible because if you live in Atlanta in particular, you always wanna find the shortest possible route from point A to point B. However, I think Waze is a terrible idea when it comes to moving from point A to point B in a biblical sense, and that is from God's love to God's forgiveness. One of the things that I'm always paying attention to is what I could call gospel literacy. And I'm always gauging gospel literacy both in our church and in our culture. And, and when I listen to various sound bites on the subject of forgiveness and repentance, there are some things that concern me. I feel like we've created a great number of shortcuts from the love of God to the forgiveness of God. 
I feel like we want to get there as quickly as possible. Even as I hear uh, uh, well-meaning believers share the gospel, I see this speed, this, uh, this desire to go dry, directly from God loves you and God forgives you without having this very necessary conversation around something very serious and lengthy and detailed and deep uh, that we're going to talk about from Psalm 51 today, 19 verses of it, right? And we're going to talk about repentance. I mean, some, if, you, if you're familiar with Psalm 51 and it's 19 verses, I mean, some of us might be saying, well, man, I could have got that done, David, in three verses. God, I'm sorry. God, will you forgive me? And hey, I promise not to do it again. That has become the very contemporary expression of repentance and forgiveness. And, and, and it's not as if we're going to roll out some kind of arduous process today and say, oh, well, if your forgiveness isn't 19 verses long, it isn't real and authentic, but there's a certain heart that David shows to us that I believe that we can all afford to inherit or at least to model or to adopt or to strive to, or, or there's an example that he provides us that's incredible and we don't want to dismiss. I want to just c- c- consider for a moment who David is. We know him as a man who was a man who, who descriptures a brand as being after God's own heart. But I want you to understand the conditions that precipitated the prayer that he's praying before God right now. Number one, he was stalking. He was a peeping Tom looking at Bathsheba from a distance as she was bathing naked. And then out of his lust, decided that he wanted to have her as his own. So then he contrived a a, a conspiracy to commit first degree murder to get her husband out of the way. And then, of course, committed adultery with her. Like David, according to, 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 to just to kind of the common idea of sin, this is a sexual predator conspiracy murdering guy. This is a bad deal, but yet the scriptures brand him as being a man after God's own heart. How can those two conversations take place in the same room, in the same sentence, and let alone in the same person? And I believe Psalm 51 gives us a great opportunity to see that. Ladies and gentlemen, as we read Psalm 51 and we think about the great love of God and how it shows up in forgiveness, we must not take any shortcuts to get from God's love to God's forgiveness. And we need to know this and remember this, that if we want to, here it is, the road, we want to travel the road between God's love and God's forgiveness. It includes the roundabout of repentance. It includes the roundabout of repentance. How many of us here in Atlanta, if you've been here for, I don't know, five years, 20 years, these roundabouts are a new thing, aren't they? Well, and roundabouts can seem grossly inconvenient. They sound like a hang-up. They sound like they create more uh, harm than good. But the reality is the engineering, the, the traffic engineers or civil engineers or industrial, which one they need to be, what they found out is that you can actually get 50% more throughput through uh, uh, an intersection because there's no traffic lights. All traffic continues to move or maybe just slow down with a subtle yield. But what happens at a traffic circle is that everybody keeps moving, but they're just forced to slow down. And for us, as we make that movement, whether it be in articulating and sharing the gospel, or even in our own worship and relationship with the Lord, I believe we need to slow down. As we move from God's love to God's forgiveness, we need to go through the roundabout of repentance. And it's not an alternative route. It's not uh, saying you need to get hung up or stuck in traffic. It's not about you need to adopt some kind of very arduous and lengthy process. But there is something that we need to do. We need to slow down and fully appreciate what makes forgiveness possible so that we are not sharing a short-circuited gospel that advertises the love of God, zips right over to the forgiveness of God, but doesn't call anyone to accountability to what happened at the cross. So let's look at our text today. Psalm 51 reads this way. 
taking on the first just two verses, David says these words, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. I hope that you notice that the first appeal that David makes is to the mercy of God. When I talk about not taking shortcuts from the love of God to the forgiveness of God, one of the places that we need to pass through is that of understanding and slowing down and knowing the mercy of God. You see, at the cross of Christ, if we could just kind of bring that in for a moment, and we'll really get there at the end, but if I could just really quick, when we think about the love of God as expressed in the death of Jesus Christ, Jesus dies, not a casual death, not a common death, but Jesus dies on the cross in a way that satisfies the wrath of God against us. That is his mercy. God owes us punishment for the sin we commit, but Jesus' death satisfies his mercy and then qualifies us for forgiveness. That is what the death of Jesus Christ does. So when we zip past and take shortcuts and talking about the love of God and we go straight to forgiveness without coming through the cross, we are not acquainting both ourselves and others with that deep and necessary work of the both justification and the, the, the propitiation of God that's happening in the gospel at the cross. We need to slow down. And so David invites us to appreciate the mercy of God. That is his love and goodness applied to our misery the things that are crushing us, the things that are hurting us, the things that are holding us back. When I look at this passage, I want you to look at it with me one more time, and we're going to do, we're going to take our own advice. We're going to slow down. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Listen to this. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Um, Carrie, would you do me a favor, baby? Would you grab the uh, baseball pants that I brought with me to church today? Yes, 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 yes. These are baseball pants, just in case you don't know them. Would you pass a pair on that side and, and one pair down this side? Yeah. While they look nasty, they've actually been in the washing machine. When I, when I read this passage and I listen to David's words, just keep passing around. Don't, don't rush it. Don't rush it. Slow it down so you can enjoy the roundabout of repentance and the mercy of God. Well, as you pass those pants around, and any of you who played sports, have you seen pants like these, and you know that you can do your darndest to try to get some of those stains out, but you just can't, not from just regular everyday washing. As a matter of fact, those pants don't get clean just because they ain't playing baseball no more. Somebody actually has to put in work to get those pants clean, don't they? And so when we start talking about repentance, I know to a, to a great degree, we often think about repentance only in part A, which is to stop doing the thing. Well, guess what? Those pants have been in our closet for a full year, and they haven't gotten any cleaner just by not playing baseball no more. You see, repentance, not only the kind of relationship that God calls us into, is repentance asks us to participate, not just in morally shutting down the behavior that got us what we were and that made us dirty, but to also bring our lives to him so that we, he might clean them and cleanse them. I, I couldn't help but think about baseball pants or some kind of fabric when I look at David's words when he says, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly, and cleanse me from my sin. Do you see the baseball pants in that passage? Let me help you understand something. If we want those pants to be really clean, here's what we have to do as a family. Number one, you take them off the child. Number two, you shake them. 
And then number three, we sit them in a sink overnight with another solution and they soak all day long. They soak and they soak. Once they get done soaking, we take them into another room with a brush and another solution and we spray and treat the stains specifically. Then after we treat the stains, after they've already been soaking, then we wash them thoroughly in the washing machine and hope that all that dirt comes out. Why? Because we recognize that what stains the pants isn't laying on the surface that is woven deeply into its fabric. Ladies and gentlemen, you and I are the pants. This stuff is woven deeply within us, and it's not just the secession of sin that gets us to the place where we need to be. We need someone to cleanse us, to blot out our transgressions, to wash us thoroughly, and to take a deep look at our iniquity. And so here's the first point. Repentance recognizes the depth of my sin and the desperate need for mercy. The desperate need for mercy allows me to understand that what makes me a sinner and to commit sin is something within the fabric of who I am that yearns for it and desires it. I was dirty from birth, as the Bible will tell us in the next coming passages. But I want you to join me in this passage. Look at this. Here's, here's kind of a, a New Testament conversation of what it takes to clean the person that repents. 1 John chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. It says this, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. We have fellowship with his blood. To fellowship means to stay for a while, not just to pass by. Repentance is not some ritualistic exercise where I just go before God and say, I'm sorry, cleanse me, forgive me, and then I'm just going to rush out the door and go back on my merry way. Fellowship with the blood means that we're hanging out, and Jesus, through his blood, every time we repent, even if it's from the same sin, there ought to be some kind of transfer where we realize something about our Savior that we didn't know the last time. I ought to be learning from my sin. I ought to be learning from his cleansing. I ought to be learning something, and my heart should be exploding with and expanding with appreciation for God's mercy toward me. As a matter of fact, I think that if our hearts were to expand with an enjoyment of our desperate need for God's mercy every time we sin and authentically repent, we could cut down on some of the sinful recidivism that is going back and doing some of the same sins over and over. I mean, have you ever not looked in the mirror and got upset with yourself because you could not believe how often you have done that thing over and over? You, you hope for a variety of sin, but no, you seem to be stuck on the same one. And then you cease to go before God. You don't throw yourself at his mercy because you say, well, I don't think God's listening to me anymore because this is just I am who I am. I'll tell you about these sound bites that come from culture. Here's a couple of sound bites that come from the culture that really bother me. When I hear someone says, well, God, forgive me in advance for what I'm about to do. That really shows a defective, a defective understanding of the gospel and the cross. Or the person who says, well, you know, God is the only person that can judge me. <laughs> I mean, that sounds so sassy, but what it really is is leave me alone, and I don't want the communal kind of accountability that comes with other people pointing out that this thing does not please God. Or the old classic, God knows my heart, as if somehow sin is purified by a motive that was like, oh, it's made a mistake. But the Bible embraces all of those, recognizes all of those that God can indeed judge and warns us of it, that, that God is indeed the person who, 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 who looks at your sin and he gives it a fair assessment. But the heart that says that isn't looking at how God really sees sin. It's trying to shield off others from pointing out sin. And so repentance recognizes the depth of sin and the desperate need for mercy. 
It sees not only that the fabric of sin, sin affects my fabric, needed to be blotted, needed to be washed, and needed to be deeply cleansed. But it also recognizes that transgression, which is the thing done, iniquity, which is just that appetite for equal, and even sin, just the stuff that is intrinsic within my being, are all evidence of the fall. Repentance recognizes that. And here's what it does, just to put a bow on it. The penitent heart is marked by a readiness to address sin and not a hurriedness to dismiss it. Where do we get that? In 1 John, it says that if we are fa- that if we'll confess our sin, then we have fellowship with one another and extend its day. And we have fellowship with the blood of Jesus Christ and extend its day. And if we try to rush past that fellowship with his blood and say that we don't have sin or that we have not sinned, the Bible says you have actually made God out to be a liar and you're lying to yourself. And so the Bible isn't calling us to soak in our sin per se, but to soak in the blood for real and not rush past the deep need for God to cleanse us. Repentance recognizes the depth of sin and the desperate need for mercy. Look at verses 3 through 6. 3 through 6 says this, For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me, and against you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach wisdom in the secret heart. I want you to hear this. Not only does uh, repentance recognize the depth of my sin and the desperate need for mercy, but repentance also recognizes the direction of my sin and it resists the urge to deflect. Look at David's words. He says the direction of my sin is, Lord, I don't care. It's not that he doesn't care about the collateral damage. It isn't that he doesn't calculate who else was affected, but but real repentance recognizes that the direction of my sin, it is ever before me, and it is against God alone, and it is from my birth. Do you see that? Lord, it was in your sight. Regardless of how well and cleverly I can cover it up and no one else will find about it, my sin is ever before me. It's ever obvious to me, and it is ever more obvious to you, and it was always in my life. It came from my birth. But notice how David does not rest in any one of those three realities as a need not to go after God, and he doesn't try to rush past it and dismiss it or deflect where sin came from. He doesn't say the devil made me do it. He doesn't say I was raised in the wrong kind of home because, you know, I got this from my mom. He recognizes that, Lord, this is before you and against you. How sobering. Repentance recognizes the direction of my sin. It is against God. And it resists the urge to deflect. There is a, a beautiful, a beautiful uh, synopsis. I believe the Bible has baked in its own illustration uh, in Luke chapter 23, verses 39 through 43. You remember the story of the thieves on the cross? You recall this moment where both of them are hanging there. The three of them are there, Jesus. And one thief looks at Jesus and says, hey, man, why don't you save yourself and us too? The other thief rebukes him and says, hey, buddy, we're both guilty and deserve what we're getting. This man has done nothing. 
And then he says to the Lord, remember me. Lord, remember me when you get into your kingdom. And he says, this day you shall be with me in paradise. I believe that that picture of the thieves on the cross is a beautiful paradigm of a conversation that is regularly happening in our hearts and in our culture on a regular basis. Where we are not recognizing the direction of our sin. And and then not recognizing the direction of our sin, we're prepared to deflect. The thief on the cross, one thief is deflecting or ignoring or rushing past his, the reality of his sin, the other thief looks at it and says, hey man, this is all me. And it is that transparency that alerts his heart to the opportunity to cry out to God and say, remember me. Hear this very clearly. When I am deflecting my sin, I am annoyed by the Savior. I'm annoyed by any constant reminder that I need to repent. But when I am truthful about my sin, I'm attracted to the Savior like the other thief. You see, when I'm honest about my sin and I really understand it, I'm attracted to the Savior because I recognize nobody can fix this but the Savior. I need his rescue. I need him to come and do something in my life. But when I'm annoyed by my sin, when I'm not honest, when I'm deflecting my sin, I'm annoyed by any announcement of the need to repent. The Bible puts it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas godly, um, excuse me, worldly grief produces death. Why is that? Why is it that godly sorrow or godly grief or a, a, a sense of overwhelming guilt for something that is happening in our life in and around us can lead to repentance? Well, the Bible puts it this way. That when we allow the wisdom of God's word to inform our guilt, our guilt will drive us to God because we recognize that he's the only one who can help us. But when the world is the wisdom that is informing our guilt, I just need another pill. I just need another syringe. I just need another dose. I just need another vacation. I just need another job. I just need another environment. I just need another spouse. When life gets tough, I just need a change of scenery, not a change of heart. That's what the world says. I need some other, I either need a medicine or I need to manage my surroundings, but it never once says I need to do something with this heart that only God can do. And that's why godly sorrow leads to repentance, but worldly sorrow leads to death and grief because we have a culture that wants to escape guilt. I mean, guilt is a dirty word. Oh, you're beating yourself up. You shouldn't be feeling guilty about that. Move on. And you should move on from guilt, but the right way with godly wisdom and with a gospel-infused understanding of where guilt comes from, that is pointing back to my brokenness. Take that guilt to God. Don't try to take that guilt to some bookshelf at Borders and hope you can find a favorite author who will tell you how to get over it. Repentance recognizes the direction of my sin and resists the urge, because we all have it, and it resists the urge to deflect. Verses 7 through 12, what does David say here? Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Lead me, uh, Lord God, let me hear uh, joy and gladness, and let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sin, and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew in me a right spirit. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of salvation, and uphold me with a, with, with a willing spirit. Seven, I mean, five verses, seven requests. Hide me, restore me, create in me, cast me not, let me, wash me, purge me. 
Over and over again, it's God clean me. Not just over and over again making promises that I won't do that again, which are empty and vain that we can't keep. The reason that we have such, 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 uh, how can I put it, repetitious sin in my life, let's just preach to me for a minute, in my life is a failure to see sin for what it is and who it's really against and what really needs to happen to safeguard against it. Not just a change of environment, but a change of the internal just stairwells of my heart, the stuff that I hide and I have not allowed God to clean and to cleanse. And so repentance recognizes the damage of my sin and relies on God for restoration. Five verses, 12 points of absolute dependency on God to restore. How many people have, uh, um, you've had an accident, an automobile accident in your life, and you had to take your car to, you know, a body shop, right? Um, Now, if you got good insurance, what do they do? If you got good insurance, they have certain standards and requirements. When they restore that vehicle, they want to bring it back to OEM standards. That is, they want to bring that vehicle back to its original form and function. On the outside, it's going to look like it did the day you got it. And on the inside, it ought to function the way that it was supposed to when it rolled off the lot. That is the end game of a good insurance company when they send you to an auto body shop. But if you got some of that other insurance... It's two people sitting at the traffic light like, man, I think we can bend this out. (laughs) Can you get that bumper off your tire? Yeah, I can still drive. Do we want to call the cops? Do we need to call insurance? Nah, man, let's go. Now, that's just when you try to handle it yourself. But the reality is, when you, go to a, when you go to one of these shops where they really don't, they're really not involved in restoration, they're just involved in repair. How can we fix this? I believe that separate from deep contemplations of the gospel and God's mercy, we specialize in trying to repair what sin has broken, but not to restore what only God can restore in our lives. And so the scriptures call us to recognize the damage of my sin and that I must realize that only God can bring about real restoration. What is this original form and function? I'll share it with you. It's right here in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. The original form and function of mankind is stated as this. So God created man in his own image. And in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and he said to them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and of the heavens and every living thing that moves on the earth. The, the OEM condition of a human being is to be able to, be, to, to bear the image of God and to multiply multiply accordingly. In other words, here's what it looks like when God has created in you a clean heart. Here's what it looks like to be created by God. And oh, by the way, how can I multiply that in my culture? Yes, the most basic understanding of to multiply would be to to grow and to increase, but also to multiply the image of God. That is to make disciples. And so in restoration, here it is, in restoration, God wants us to model the work that he has done and bring him tons of referral business. I mean, we we love to get out and share the goodness of God, but are we prepared to share what he has done and how he has forgiven and how he has restored? Where not what we become the centerpiece of the story, but what we become the object of what God has restored? Are we prepared to share that with other people so that we can bring God some repeat business 
so that they can see that the, 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 the blessed life that you live with that beautiful smile and that, that pep in your step is not the product of just a more promising life outlook, but truly the work of a Savior who is inside your life actively reminding you of sin and as quickly as you will recognize it and repent of it, he restores? Are we prepared to tell the dirty side of our saga so that people see that the gospel actually works? What is one of the greatest critiques of the modern-day believer? Self-righteous. How could anybody have gotten that press release on us? Unless we've been shortcutting the conversation of the love of God and the forgiveness of God without passing through the cross, justification, mercy, dying in my place, qualifying me. Only Jesus Christ qualifies me. Righteousness being imputed to me. Unless we're, it's because we're bypassing that, that we come off as self-righteous. I'm, I'm good because I've accepted and found God, not because God has done a great work in me. That was the sarcasm. That's not what I'm saying is true. Do you understand that, right? Just want to make sure I know that landed kind of heavy and I didn't get anywhere close to an amen. What I'm saying is we may have very well released a narrative to our culture that says that what makes us clean is that we belong to the right club. Not because God has gotten under the hood and repaired and restored and dealt with some of the deep damage that only he could deal with. Is that better? Thank you. Verses 13 through 19, there's quite a turn in the conversation, and I love this. Let's take our time and go through it. David says that, Lord, in verse 12, if you'll restore me to the joy of salvation and uphold me with the willing spirit, verse 13 says this, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will, not, you will not delight in sacrifice or else I would give it. You would not be pleased in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and the whole offerings. Then bulls and then bulls will be offered on your altar. I want to really zero in on David's conversation. He says, Lord, restore me. Save me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. Not hanging out in the further holy huddles showcasing my new clean garments, but I will teach transgressors your ways. Created me a clean heart and renew me. Lord, I'm sorry, jumping back a little bit, but deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. I hope what you see here is that restoration recognizes the duty of actually making disciples and the beauty of being a living sacrifice before God, an active showcase of the kind of work that he wants us to do in dying to ourselves. Notice that David wasn't trying to advertise the temple process. He was trying to advertise God's process of righteousness and restoration in his own life. 
Now, I want you to hear something very clearly. When David says in the book of Psalm that God does not desire sacrifices, that's crazy. Let, hear me very carefully. So you've got a series of six or seven at least offerings that are, that are offered on a regular basis. Each offering has a voice. Some are a grain offering, a thanksgiving offering. Others are to repair relationship horizontally between brothers who may have sinned. But then there is the burnt offering, the one that actually atones for Israel's sins. This big offering, the one that is totally and entirely consumed, nothing left on the table. All of it is consumed and is a statement to God that we are totally committed, that we are all in, that we are all yours. And David says, you don't delight in that. What you're really looking for, the real sacrifice you're looking for, is these broken hearts. What is David looking at that would make him say that? I believe he's looking at the same thing that Paul was looking at when he said this. In Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Mm, heard that before. To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that the test, by, that, excuse me, by, by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So interesting that Paul on one side of the cross says that our real worship is to lay our lives down as a living sacrifice before God, and that David on the other side of the cross would say, real worship, what you're really looking for, oh God, are people who will lay themselves down and that their hearts will be broken, and that's your sacrifice. And so we hear the gospel right now in stereo, that, that, that repentance is actually a part of our worship. Because what it does is it looks at a holy God for who he is and immediately recognizes who I am and as a sinner. And throughout me recognizing that I'm a sinner, I'm constantly appealing to the holiness of God. What does a sinner say to a holy God? Well, throughout the pattern of Scripture, we see when, when, when faithful men of God had an up-close and personal encounter with the Theophanies, which is a, 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 an image of God, a material image of God, what they would do is immediately repent. Like the, the sheer unbridled presence of God immediately brings people to their knees and a recognition of their great and deep need for cleansing. And so oftentimes I believe that if you're here and something's going on in your life and it's an area of sin, you feel like sin disqualifies you from worship and God is saying, please run to me with worship. Worship me through repentance because your worship, if it's done in spirit and in truth, recognizes me as holy, recognizes me as righteous, recognizes me as the only one who can restore you. So don't let the devil play games with our hearts and minds in making us believe that because we're currently in sin that we can't come to church or that we can't have a conversation with God. It is a total lie. It is the prime time to have a conversation with God. And so restoration recognizes the duty of making disciples and the beauty of being a living sacrifice. God is not interested in those of us who are procedurally correct. Many of us could probably go through Psalm 51 and plug in our names and plug in our sin and pray that and believe that we have somehow accomplished repentance. Not so. The Lord is not looking for the procedurally correct. He is looking for those of us who are personally broken. I, um, some years ago, we, me, Carrie, and I bought our first house, 1998, in the city of Detroit. Um, when we got ready to move uh, back to Georgia in 2005, 
we were seeing some of the leading indicators of, um, of economic decline. Couldn't sell our house for the price that we wanted. And so um, once we realized that we were fully in the throes of a bad economy, you know, one of the things that was on the table was um, uh, what they called uh, a short sale and then subsequent debt forgiveness. Debt forgiveness. You could go to the banks and, and make an appeal. And so um, I went to the banks. I moved, to, moved my family uh, back here to Atlanta, and, and uh, we've got this um, ball and chain around our ankles back in Detroit. What do we do? So I call the bank, and I'm talking to the, I'm talking to the short sale department, and I'm like, hey, I'd like, to, I'd like to short sell this house and take advantage of some of these, this, you know, this debt forgiveness that I'm hearing about. Will you just wipe that completely off of me? And... Uh, she pulls up my file and she says, Mr. Dubair, you don't qualify. I said, what do you mean? She said, you haven't missed any notes. She said, you have to be behind on your notes in order to qualify for that. And I'm like, man, I just can't like come up here and get some, and just get some debt forgiveness? No. And so what I had to prove and what I had to demonstrate was I had an actual hardship. Or better yet, I had to prove that I was broken. Hear me carefully amid the chuckles. Hear me carefully. We don't qualify for debt forgiveness when we can go before God and we just steadily in our back pocket got our own resources. Well, if God don't come through, I can fix this myself. I'm going to try God. I'm going to ask for forgiveness to see if it works. But the reality is I don't feel that bad about my sin. I don't feel that bad about my condition. I ain't really that broken. I ain't as bad as the person next to me. I ain't as bad as the people beating on the doors of our country coming up from some other country. I ain't as bad as the, uh, uh, the whoever. I'm not as bad as that. Whatever. Whoever is your iconic person that's worse than you, we all have one. But until we recognize that we are the person who is officially broke, we don't qualify for forgiveness. But guess what? It's not my recognition that qualifies me. It is Christ's death on the cross that qualifies me. My recognition is my faithful response to God that says, God, you are right all the time. My faith says, God, you are right. I might even know how right you are. And, and here it is. I don't expect us to walk out of here today with an official theology of repentance that is airtight, super buttoned up. He's like, man, I don't feel like I can really repent before God unless I can repeat all the points that Rod said. No, that's not the point. God isn't looking for the procedurally correct. He's looking for those who are personally and really broken. It is the work of Jesus Christ on the cross that qualifies us to see just how broken we really are. And it is not until we are attracted to the Christ and we see him, we see him hanging there or we understand the particulars of how he died in our place to assuage the wrath of God. He died in our place to qualify us for his mercies. It's not until we see that clearly that we'll come before God honestly. And I'm begging and asking that you would preach the gospel well to yourself. Slow down and stop rushing from the love of God to the forgiveness of God. And be prepared to go through the roundabout of repentance. And I beg you, by the mercies of God, stop sharing the shortcut gospel. Stop just talking about love and lunging into forgiveness without acquainting people with the deep work of Jesus Christ where he died a substitutionary death on our part, a voluntary death because it was in love, a necessary death because it was the only thing that would satisfy the wrath of God against us, and a victorious death because he rose from the dead and he defeated sin, death, and the devil. And if we place faith in him, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead also resides in us and will raise our mortal bodies. The Bible wants us to be clear of the bodily death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ because as the icky as these bodies are, God says, I can redeem everything. The end. 
really don't. <laughs> um, so what would be my ask? I would ask us, and I think you heard it, I think it's twofold. Let's reacquaint ourselves with the gospel. Not just as particular facts that come from the scripture, but as the stuff that qualifies us for relationship with God and makes us who we are. I beg us to slow down and do the work of real repentance. The slowing down equal you need to go on a, a full-blown sackcloth and ash fast? No. But I do believe that we need to stop rushing, rushing through uh, our, 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 our familiarity with Christianity. If we're going to rush somewhere, rush to God, but slow down when you get there. And then I would beg and ask that we would not share a shortcutted gospel that only takes people from the love of God to the forgiveness of God, but doesn't work through that deep, wonderful, and beautiful traffic of repentance that brings us to a, 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 just a, a really firm and intimate understanding of the work on the cross. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come before you today. Our hearts are full and we are thankful for how you speak to us, what you're doing to us and what you're doing in us. We ask for your forgiveness for those things in our lives, oh God, that we have swept under the rug, that we have dismissed, that we have deflected, that we have just believed we had under control, that we've come in our own resources and we refuse to recognize just how broken bankrupt we are, regardless of how morally consistent we might have thought we were. We beg, O oh holy God and Father, that even as you're doing a work within us, that we would be transparent with that work publicly as we share the gospel, that we might bring you more referral business and others who want to be restored similarly. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.